Welcome to That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by OneTrust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovells. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of That Privacy Podcast. So this is the fourth episode of our podcast um, that we put on in 2019, and this is the, the year we've launched the podcast, actually. Our first episode was in March. And for those of you who may not have listened before, uh, the format is quite simple. Uh, we sit here in the lovely offices of Hogan Levels, overlooking uh, the City of London, having a coffee or perhaps a tea, and uh, run through a selection of key privacy topics that we are thinking about at the moment, perhaps hearing about from our partners and clients in the market. And uh, yeah, generally, it's not a bad way to spend an hour um, with our esteemed company. Uh, as ever, we're uh, joined by our host, Mr. Eduardo Ustran, Global Co-Head of the Hogan Levels Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice. And we also have Alexis Catavidis, Global Privacy Director at OneTrust Data Guidance. Um, myself, my name is David Longford. I run OneTrust Data Guidance. So, gents, festive greetings to you both. Thank you. Hello. Uh, thanks for making the time. And essentially, it's a, essentially it's a chance mm. for us to perhaps put our heads above the water a bit, look around for for an hour and um, just take the temperature of what's happening around in the, in the privacy space. Today we have the classic uh, end of 2019 podcast, so we're going to be chatting through some of the themes and developments we perhaps bookmarked as being um, most important, if we can say important, or perhaps most uh, influential in 2019, and then taking a, a look ahead to 2020 to speculate about how some of these, these developments might play out, and of course uh, throw anything else in, in there that we, we want to make uh, everybody aware of. So uh, it can be difficult to make confident predictions, particularly in the privacy space, but obviously here they're accompanied by a nice uh, uh, cup of coffee and uh, Hogan Level's excellent mince pies. In this session, I think we should be able to help people to map out some of the things that we at Hogan Levels and One Trust Daily Guidance are aware of and looking at closely. So we've, we've kind of come up with a list, mm-hmm. um, a list of things that we think are uh, worth re- recapping from this year. Let's just dive straight into to the list. No particular order. Mm-hmm. But I think of one of the things you wanted to put out to discuss um, was looking ahead to CCPA, um, obviously coming into force on 1st of January. And a lot of people have been comparing CCPA perhaps loosely with GDPR and discussing the similarities and differences. So I think it'd just be good to, uh, where are we at the moment with CCPA in terms of how it's seen in the market and what people are are saying about uh, its importance in sure. privacy? Absolutely. Well, so we start the, the conversation with possibly the hot topic of the year for yeah. any privacy practitioner out there. And if... 2018 was the year of the GDPR, 2019 has been the year of the CCPA. And I feel a bit um, bad for my own colleagues in the in the States who didn't have a chance to rest from, from the GDPR tsunami and they had to dive into the, the treacherous waters of the CCPA. And uh, what is interesting, of course, about the CCPA is that it's actually a law in the making. So it's, it's mm-hmm. the difference between, uh, one of the key differences, I see, between the GDPR and the CCPA is that the GDPR, you spend years making the law, mm-hmm. then the law is agreed, and then you've got a couple of years to kind of figure out what to do about it. Yeah. But with CCPA, they pass the law, but not quite, and then um, the law is coming into effect, as it were, at the beginning of next year, which is barely two weeks away. But (laughs) as we all know, it is still in the making in the sense that um, there have been been consultations this year and the regulations are uh, only um, surfacing or resurfacing now. And I think the first half of 2020 um, is going to be crucial in terms of truly understanding the significance of the CCPA in, pr- in practical terms. Yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, we've noticed that quite a lot this year as well, as you say, of a law in development and how um, the, the goalposts do shift in some ways because, you know, we started the year with 
um, you know, the CCPA being a huge discussion point and, you know, having a look at the text itself. And a lot of people were wondering whether amendments were going to be proposed to it. Eventually, we saw several bills making their way through the legislative process. And then it became a question of which bills are going to pass, which ones are not. We ended up in October with which ones finally did make it through only for at exactly the same time the Attorney General regulations to also come out um, and add a different dimension to it, as you say, Eduardo, and, you know, remains to be seen on that. And with those regulations, um, again, you know, hopefully uh, aim to bring a lot of clarity to it. But again, I think a lot of questions still. Um, and I was on the Attorney General website the other day, just having a look now that the consultation process is finished um, and the public hearings, um, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of comments that were submitted to the Attorney General. So we shall see what uh, ends up coming out in the, in the finalized version already next year. Yeah, I think it's worth just expanding on what you just said, Eduardo, about the period of negotiation or discussion around the formation of each piece of legislation, CCPA and GDPR, because I think when people say, oh, how similar or different they are, they kind of overlook the very different origins of each um, act and, um, and intentions. So um, GDPR, obviously a kind of a central part of the uh, EU digital single market strategy, um, and not the culmination, but very much an advanced piece of legislation to support this whole big wider project of promoting innovation and digital kind of progress within the European Union and so not to put it very bluntly not the first um, attempts at, at doing it the, the result of a lot of com- years of conversations in fact CCPA you know very fast process a matter of days I think it was if not weeks in discussions before it was kind of confirmed and whereas GDPR could be sen- said to be somewhat the culmination of this process uh, CCPA might lead to other states enacting laws, a discussion about federal privacy acts. So certainly a um, certainly a work, work in progress in terms of US privacy laws. I think maybe that element is overlooked by people kind of comparing the two. Yeah, I think comparisons are inevitable because we live in in a in a world where data is global, and therefore you try to maximize your the output of your efforts to comply with privacy and data protection laws around the world. So, of course, much has been said about the fact that if you comply with the GDPR, how close does that bring you to complying with CCPA? And there are different different animals altogether, in the sense that the GDPR is huge. It's, if, it's, if you print it, it's really thick. And if you count the, the number of obligations that any given organization needs to comply with under the GDPR, you probably, you probably have 40 or 50 different obligations. The CCPA is, is narrower in scope and, and, and it focuses a lot on certain aspects of control that people have over the data in terms of whether the data can be sold, depending on what we mean by selling data, and also what level of control people have to have access to the data. But it's much narrower in terms of the obligations. Perhaps the difficulty arises from the fact that because, as you are saying, the development of the law, um, at least until this year, was so quick, there, in in the drafting itself, there were aspects that were left very open, and you know it's more for perhaps my U.S. colleagues who have spent hours and 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 days and months looking at every single aspect of of this law. But it seems to me that there are big questions in terms of the interpretation of the law, and even though we may be talking of a handful of obligations compared to forty or fifty. Those handful of obligations are can be very substantial depending on how you interpret concepts like selling data, for example. Good. Okay. Well, that's um, one we're obviously uh, anxiously looking forward to seeing how the whole topic of CCPA implementation develops and uh, how industry reacts. Generally, what will um, will be the next steps in, in that process. Um, we should move on. Let's move on to our bookmark topic number two, which is GDPR enforcement. 
And yeah, yeah, obviously it's the uh, thing that everybody was talking about ahead of the GDPR coming into to force on May 25th last year. You know, how will regulators react? How quickly will they react? What kind of things will they focus on? 4%, 2%, what will these you know, huge uh, fines actually look like when uh, we start uh, working with the GDPR day to day? And this has been the first full year you know, since it was uh, implemented. So what are we thinking at the end of the year? Perhaps Alexis would like to take us into this first. What do we think in terms of enforcement under, under the member states? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as you say, I think a lot of uh, the interest hasn't died down. Um, we've you know, built a few things ourselves to try and keep up with enforcement activities of data protection authorities to make sure that um, people are aware of the issues that they're focusing on, um, the amounts, of course, that are being issued. Um, and, you know, I think what was interesting from actually your editorial last month, Eduardo, because um, you ended up writing about uh, GDPR enforcement. Are we seeing it? Is it happening? Um, and, you know, you threw in a couple of comments regarding some pieces that you had read, also some things that other people had said regarding, you know, the GDPR and whether it was actually as it was promised to be hmm. in, in some ways, I suppose, um, and whether enforcement was actually happening. And, you know, I think you touched on a couple of very interesting points around whether enforcement necessarily means just monetary penalties. Mm. And I don't know if you want to chat a little bit about that, how you've seen it from your side of things of dealing with clients that potentially are having a look at these with authorities. Well, my my perspective of it is that enforcement is certainly happening. And it's interesting when you, you hear a lot of noise and a lot of complaints and people being disappointed that enforcement isn't happening. And yeah, it is true. We may not have seen sort of multi-million euro fines of hundreds of, of, of million or, or, or billions of euros fines. But they, they may happen in the future, but that's not really... I know that's very colorful, but that's not really what enforcement of the law is about. And it, it was never about that, and it should, shouldn't have been positioned like that. But what I do see every day that crosses my, my desk or my, or my inbox is all kinds of letters and investigations from data protection authorities in certainly the ICO, uh, the Spanish one, the Canil in France, the German regulators, they are all, the, the, the Dutch, they are constantly, constantly... Issuing, as I said, inquiries in terms of um, information gathering. They are upholding complaints. They are writing quite aggressive letters uh, sometimes to organisations saying, "We received this complaint. We think you are in breach. Explain yourself in in a week or answer these twenty five questions by Thursday." And so that is enforcement because then companies need to, to act and uh, and the law needs to be upheld. From that perspective, the law is, is, being, is being enforced, that's for sure. And just on the, that point about those types of letters that regulators might send out saying, listen, we've received this complaint, you know, we've got some concerns, can you reply back within a week or a month or whatever it is? For a lot of our listeners who may never have received a letter from a DPA before, hopefully, apart from paying an annual renewal or something like that, what would have changed about those kinds of initial uh, outreach letters that you know, regulators are sending to companies in the EU now and under GDPR, outside the EU under GDPR? What would have changed in the last year and a half? What has changed is, is one is the knowledge that these regulators are all more powerful than they were before. Mm-hmm. So that automatically makes you take those letters more seriously, okay. I think. But it's also the fact that the whole um, GDPR has such a high profile over the past few years mm-hmm. that there is a real sense that something needs to be done, that you mm-hmm. cannot ignore compliance and that you need to have the right mechanisms in place. Mm-hmm. And the regulators themselves feel empowered to collaborate and to cooperate with each other much more. And we are seeing 
quite a fluid relationship <laughs> across the certainly across the EU, but I would say even internationally, in terms of um, joint actions and one regulator communicating with another and say, well, you are the lead authority, so please um, can you follow this up with this uh, controller uh, as a result of this complaint. And that communication is, is definitely happening at a level that we hadn't seen before. And I think it's an interesting point, uh, you know, as you say, in terms of uh, the profile of the GDPR, in terms of the powers that, you know, the enhanced powers to supervisory authorities, but then also um, that other enshrining of the accountability principle, as you were saying, when, you know, you're faced with uh, letters and investigations and requests for information there, I imagine, from a supervisory authority perspective, you know, it, it's uh, that expectation that now, you know, these obligations have been imposed to maintain records of processing activities, to keep track of uh, consent records, what if relying on that, or to document your uh, LIA uh, for your legitimate interests. If you're aiming to rely on legitimate interests as a legal basis for processing, then you know you will have to present your LIA. So there does seem to be a kind of self-enforcement in a way. Oh, absolutely. And that's really important because I think we need to appreciate that regulators do not exist just to whack people with massive fines. That's not their purpose. Their purpose is to ensure compliance Mm -hmm. and to supervise and and monitor that. So their efforts are always aimed at achieving that purpose. So what we're seeing, as you're saying, is efforts by regulators to ensure that companies and organizations do the right thing. And you will get a letter that says, we've received this complaint, you haven't honored this right of access, for example, or you haven't um, unsubscribed this user from your marketing list, Mm -hmm. things like that. Do it. Mm -hmm. Do it. Do it now and tell us you've done it within a week. That's what they are asking for. And that is part of of their enforcement role, Mm -hmm. because ultimately... What a company then needs to do is is, is to go and say, oh, yes, of course, we need to make sure that we comply with this subject access request. And, of course, if you don't get it right the first time and then you do it, then okay. But then if the same same regulators start start getting um, complaints from different people about the same companies for the same issues then, of course, that what that shows is that there is a systematic failure. Mm-hmm. And that's when they would really go deep and say, not only you're not complying or honoring this right, but we think that you don't have the processes in place, which is the point you were making about accountability, where the expectation, it's not an expectation, it's a, it's a legal obligation sure. <laughs> to ensure that you actually have the right measures to comply with the law. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a lot of investigations in, into that type of aspect of, of the law. And I guess that relates, you know, as when you talk about um, systems and processes, it always reminds me of, um, you know, data protection by design and by default, which we, maybe we'll talk about for what to expect in 2020. But we've, you know, it's obviously uh, a concept and uh, a set of principles that have been around for a long, long time. But again, new legal requirements under the GDPR, which at the time, I think there was um, maybe uh, a bit of skepticism over whether we would see enforcement and how would it be enforced. Um, But we have seen enforcement from DPAs on that particular issue. And obviously, um, you know, one of the things that we can look at is the EDPB obviously um, coming into the fray now with their recent draft guidelines. Um, so it's it, it ties together with the accountability principle and something that, as you say, is no longer, is not an expectation, but a legal requirement. Yeah, and, I can, and I'm convinced that Data protection by design and by default is going to be one of the big GDPR topics of 2020 because, as you say, the EDPB has just issued their draft guidelines. They will become formal final version guidelines in a few months, by the end of quarter one probably of 2020. And there you have a, a clear sort of description of what the regulators think in in 27 pages or something like that of of what compliance with this 
requirement involves. And there is a lot of content there and a lot of guidance or thinking, let's say, of the regulators is clearly spelled out in terms of what are these practical steps on a principle by principle basis that they believe a company, an organization needs to take in order to comply with this obligation. And they will be looking at that and they will be using their own guidance as a checklist for companies to say, okay, are you doing this? Data minimization, what about all these different aspects? Or purpose limitation or data accuracy or all these aspects of the law. And that is something that I'm sure will attract a lot of regulatory attention next year. I have the feeling that maybe I mean, our, our market is full of very diverse companies from companies or organizations with privacy teams over 100 people or you know, a lot of people within an organization working together on privacy issues to even medium-sized companies or larger companies with a handful. And so there's a, there's a great kind of resource discrepancy between, between some organizations we work with, certainly. And I have a feeling that privacy by design wasn't expected to be an issue of enforcement perhaps this year within some sections of the market, because to really address uh, PBD within your organization, you need to talk to sales and talk to procurement and talk to records management and finance and all these different areas of the business. And that's quite a lot to do for an organization that perhaps wasn't GDPR ready on May 25th, but working towards it. So we'll see, I mean, maybe 2020 will come too soon for a couple of organizations uh, in this area. Well, the thing is, the whole of the GDPR became effective more than a year ago. The the fact that organizations went for the low-hanging fruit in terms of compliance, mm-hmm. privacy notices or uh, data processing agreements or records of processing, those kind of things show that they were trying to make some, some quick gains, and that's, that's normal. But as I've said... There are many other obligations within the GDPR, and in fact, some of which are really important in terms of achieving the aim that the law is trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it from a public policy perspective, Mm -hmm. the provisions around data protection by design and by default, or data protection impact assessments, or data protection officer, are probably some of the most critical ones in terms of achieving compliance with the law as a whole. So, yes, they are more difficult because they are more complex and they are new, but at the same time, they are some of the most important elements of the law. And I can imagine that regulators will also see it like that, and their expectations will be that companies will need to pay attention to this. Okay, moving on to one of a couple of issues we've bookmarked to discuss. Um, things that we expected to happen, speaking of expectations, but didn't quite materialise. And um, one of those, let's start with, is Brexit. So um, here we are, December uh, the 18th now, obviously week before Christmas. We haven't Brexited uh, yet, but um, obviously it looked like we will in the new year. And... What can we say, we have discussed this on a couple of previous podcasts, what can we say for our listeners, without going into all the details of data protection, um, change expected in light of Brexit, but what can we say to our listeners just to kind of end the year? What, kind of, what are the key points just to mention? So I think the problem with Brexit is, or, or at least uh, as I said, is Brexit fatigue in the sense that, as you say, it should have happened mm-hmm. um, at the end of March, uh, or uh, then at the end of October, and it, it didn't happen. So it's one of these things that uh, lawyers and regulators and many others have said, you need to prepare for Brexit. You need to make sure that you've got the right mechanisms in place because the UK is going to leave the EU and all that. And yes, yeah, some companies may have prepared and others less so. And now it's finally happening, I guess, at the end of January next year. And... The question is, are we ready? Are we really ready? Because we've been hearing that it was happening, as you're saying, but because it hasn't happened, it's been a bit of, okay, okay, well, we'll, we'll figure it out. It'll be all right in the end. And to be honest, that's a very, uh, uh, that's probably a, mind, a type of mindset that applies to many Brexit-related issues. But in terms of data protection, of course, we've got the big, the, the two biggest issues 
of one, the UK becoming a third country, so mm-hmm. what about international data transfers? And then the fact that as a non-EU member state, the UK Data Protection Authority is no longer part of the EU regulatory community, as it were, or officially at least. And what are the implications of that? So I think those two issues in particular raise loads of practical aspects in terms of, of what needs to be done. And therefore, we need to make sure that we don't ignore Brexit and assume that uh, someone else will take care of it. And so the, on those two points, so the, the first one, which we, we have discussed in a couple of podcasts about adequacy and how would we, the UK, achieve adequacy, etc. I think we, we, we have covered the, the broad points on that. Um, the second point I think is interesting in terms of the, uh, the ICO being a lead authority. Why would that be so important for people to just be aware of? And what, what kind of impact could that have if, in the event of Brexit, the ICO is no longer considered, obviously, a lead authority of the EU? Sure. Well, the system of the lead supervisory authority, which is one of the novelties of the GDPR, is also one of the great benefits of the GDPR, from certainly from a compliance perspective, because companies know that if you operate across the EU, you are accountable to one one regulator, and, and you don't have to be uh, dealing with loads of different data protection authorities all the time for, for what is called cross-border processing, so data processing across the EU. The UK ICO is one of the perhaps most popular lead authorities. And by popular, I I don't necessarily mean that they are the most liked, but they are popular in the sense that many global organizations have their headquarters or their privacy teams in the UK and have been relying on the ICO being their lead supervisory authority. With Brexit, on the 1st of February next year, the UK leaves the EU and the ICO leaves the European Data Protection Board. And therefore, no matter how influential the ICO has been and hopefully will continue to be, it cannot perform the role of lead supervisory authority across the EU. So someone else will have to do that. And that's what I think many organizations are struggling with because they say, okay, so which one will it be? Where do we have our biggest presence in the EU if it's not the UK? And for, yeah, so the purpose, so if your lead authority is at the moment the ICO and you, know, you eventually choose to nominate Camille, for example, instead, but you would still consider informally the ICO to be your lead authority, albeit not in the same sense. There would have to be a good deal, good deal of collaboration between uh, the ICO and the field just on your you know, any issue involving your organisation, and that would have to be kind of quite formally constructed, I imagine. Yeah, well, I mean, something that's really important to appreciate is that if you're an organisation that operates across the EU, including the UK, then as of the 1st of February, you're going to have at least two lead authorities, because then you'll have one for the EU and then the EICO for the UK anyway. So at the very least, your your efforts will be duplicated. But the the, the challenge of identifying a lead authority in the EU when you have your headquarters in the UK or your privacy team in the UK Mm -hmm. or the decisions about data are made in the UK is that you are going to struggle to find or or meet the criteria that allow you to select a a lead authority elsewhere. It's not like you can go and pick and choose and say, oh, I I quite fancy France, uh, so I'm going to choose the canal. Or, oh, actually, I prefer the Spanish weather, so uh, let's go with the Spanish uh, agencia. But there has to be an element of data connection, if you want, with that country, and therefore that leads that Authority. Yeah, and for a lot of companies, if your main your infrastructure is in the UK, you might import things from outside the EU, but you're selling to Spanish citizens, to people within the EU, then it can be quite hard, I guess. Maybe 40% of your sales go to Germany, 
30% to Poland. I mean, there's not really a lot to choose from in that situation. Yeah, and, and look, the regulators themselves are learning how the whole lead authority framework works. So obviously, Brexit adds a lot of uncertainty to many of these issues. And we'll have to look at how the ICO is regarded by their own mm-hmm. colleagues this this coming year. Common sense suggests that the ICO will not be completely excluded from that community of regulators in the EU. But what the withdrawal agreement, so the UK will leave the EU under the withdrawal agreement or, or, or with that uh, framework in place, which means that officially the UK will have to cease to have institutions or public authorities being part of the EU institutions and committees and things like that. So that automatically takes the ICO outside the European Data Protection Board. The question is whether on a hoc basis or at some level they will continue to perform a role. And that's what we need right. to see. But the hands of the uh, of the DPAs are tied because sure. ultimately the law requires you to be in the EU in order to be part of the EDPB. And that's, yeah. that's it. Well, as ever with Brexit, we shall see. Uh, we shall hope to see, maybe. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, we had another kind of uh, topic just to talk about in terms of things that we maybe expected to happen. It happened quicker at the start of the year and we haven't quite developed as we as we thought we would and that's the e-privacy regulation so Alexis do you want to kick us off with with this where where are we where do we expect to be and why are we not (laughs) yeah I think with the e-privacy it's sort of ebbed and flowed with expectation Um, it's been something that's been on the table for a long long time Um, you know one point it was hoped or you know the idea was that it would come into effect at the same time as the GDPR was you know one uh, tight time frame that was on the table at one point to the point where you know a year and a half since that time gone through another dip and you know I think we probably started the year thinking that e-privacy was a likelihood Um, to reach some agreement between the EU institutions. And then that I think that hope waned a little bit. And we had a new presidency take over that really wanted to push this conversation forward. But we seem to be now at a point where we're actually probably more stuck from a legislative process than we've been before. And it seems that, you know, conversations might start from not scratch but a new european commission proposal may be on the table i think so yeah i mean it's easy to say now but we could see this coming i think because we've been banging about this proposed e-privacy regulation for nearly three years and the parliament got through the the draft very quickly Mm -hmm. but then when a proposal like this hits the Council of the EU, and the Council, which represents the governments and the more pragmatic thinking of the EU member states, looks at a proposal which is very dogmatic and that has a very strict approach to how you handle issues where you have prohibitions and then exemptions to a prohibition, for example. Mm-hmm. And to put that in the context of the digital economy, which is constantly evolving, constantly changing, constantly adding new new things, it becomes very difficult for the decision makers to, to push this forward. And what I think we've seen is that every time that a new member state took over the presidency of the council, which typically lasts six months, the very beginning, the first month or two months, there was a lot of enthusiasm by that member state or the, that delegation. Oh, come on, let's do it. We, we, can, we can get this done. Yeah. But then as the discussions went on, the reality took over. And by the time uh, that, that presidency finishes six months later, there is no hope almost of, of making any progress. Then the next president takes over. And yes, there is a little bit of impetus, but 
is going from presidency to presidency, as I said, three years now. And we got to the end of this of 2019 now. And we are pretty much at the beginning. So I'm not surprised that the European Commission is now looking at this and saying, maybe we should really start afresh. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that because there seems to be a lack of synchronization, in a sense, between the GDPR, which is very much around um, risk-based approach and, and balancing the, the rights of individuals between the use of personal data and different obligations applying at different, with different levels of intensity depending on risk and all that. And that is missing mm-hmm. from the e-privacy regulation, the draft. So I think we can probably see that or, or we can predict that a new version of the e-privacy regulation will have that flavor mm-hmm. that we have seen in the GDPR. And how easy or difficult do you feel it is just you know, observing this process moving forward to make an intensely technologically focused piece of regulation technologically neutral? I mean, that's obviously what you need to do, but how, how hard is that when you're looking at e-privacy? Well, it, it is hard if you are trying to address the problems that you see today. Because you look at the problems or the challenges you see today and say, oh, what are the issues? Oh, cookies. Okay. Um, uh, cookies on, on browsers. So let's just draft a law that governs how to use cookies on browsers. But that is today. Tomorrow we will see cars that use digital fingerprinting for the same purposes. And then what? Do, do the same rules apply? And what are the implications of that? So that is the issue. So therefore, the answer to that challenge is to ensure that the law, that um, any law that is passed, is put through a filter, if you want, where technology is not, or, or solving a technological problem doesn't focus on what is happening today, but it kind of looks at the principle that we are trying to establish and the behavior that we are trying to encourage or discourage, mm-hmm. and then addresses that. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I, I'm not making this stuff up. It, this is a principle of, of European lawmaking, the technological ne- neutrality. It's just that it is tempting to look at a problem and say, here's how we resolve this problem today. Mm-hmm. But that's not really the answer. When you are trying to apply legislative measures to something that moves way faster than the legislators move. Well, speaking, since you mentioned of regulating the today, one thing that we certainly did see from 2019 that did happen, and speaking of e-privacy, was obviously that what is now the infamous Planet 49 CJU ruling on... um, you know, the amendments under the 2009 directive looking at issues around consent and the GDPR and cookie banners and particularly implied consent, whether that's, you know, continuing to browse a website. And we've certainly seen a position taken by the courts now with something that's, I think, been a conversation point anyway throughout the year. We've had various authorities issuing guidance on cookies and similar technologies. It seems quite a while since cookies were so under the spotlight and you know that's probably you know down to quite a few differing reasons why it was a major issue this year not just with respect to you know the GDPR posing questions of how you know it relates to consent under the e-privacy directive etc but certainly we've we've got a ruling now what are your thoughts on I know we did a session on this in Brussels, actually, and we had a long chat about it. And, you know, it was a packed room. I think everybody <laughs> was has been very, very interested to see the direction, obviously, because of the impact yeah. commercially and practically. So what, what have been your thoughts or what have you seen since? Well, with, with the Planet 49 decision... The European Court of Justice has given us the the gift of certainty. So uh, after all these years, we now know that consent means (laughs) opt-in. And for all these years, you know, since 2009, when this obligation for cookie consent was introduced in the law, you know, more than 10 years ago now, 
the there has been so much debate and so much guidance and so much sort of lack of compliance as well and misinterpretation of the law. But even the regulators themselves used to say, well, as long as you make it clear what amounts to consent, you can imply consent from something like clicking on a link or scrolling a page or something like that. And the European Court of Justice has come along and said, actually, that's not quite right, because even before the GDPR came into into effect, under the existing definition of consent, consent had to be specific and active, or, or, or it had to be an indication of wishes. And therefore, it has to amount to some kind of affirmative action, which is specific to the thing that you are consenting to. So if you are browsing the internet, you're not specifically consenting to cookies. You're just browsing the internet. And therefore the court is saying to us, if you really want people to consent to your use of cookies, then get them to say, yes, I accept cookies and click on something or, or tick a box where they say, yes, is this by clicking on this that I'm only saying to you that I accept cookies. And all the mechanisms, all the cookie banners and all the wonderful consent tools that are being created now need to be, if you want to make them compliant, of course, you need to go in, in that direction. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is, is good in a sense that we now have mm-hmm. that level of certainty, mm-hmm. at least. Uh, there's still questions about whether you can make it take it or leave it or whether you can have cookie walls. And that that's perhaps for another decision, another day. But at least we now know that consent... For cookies means opt-in consent. And what sort of questions have you been receiving notice from our clients about this? I mean, is there is there general and more understanding of uh, cookie obligations today than a year ago, or do you think this case and others and and the guidance put out by Canil ICO etc over the summer has uh, kind of muddied the water by the amount of noise? Like, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I think pre uh, Planet Forty Nine. You know, we we did receive a lot of questions around interpretation of the guidance that was being put out. It seemed to be coming thick and fast since, you know, the summer we started, you know, with Canil, with ICO. I mean, the DSK in Germany had issued guidance previously. We then saw Spain. We then saw, again, Germany. Finland in the end, was it? Yeah, we've got got guidance from there. Uh, You know, so I think pre- CJU decision, we had a lot of questions around interpretation okay. of the guide. Chronologically, that's more like spring, <laughs> summer. Yeah. And then, as Eduardo says, I think, you know, the, the benefit of case law is that, you know, it adds the level of certainty that perhaps interpretation from various different authorities, you know, acting independently also not coming together under the European Data Protection Board that issues a joint opinion provides. So I think mm-hmm. since since that time it's been very clear cut as to what the CJU has said. Yeah, I mean you would think it's clear cut <laughs> and, and I and, but then you read you in the the guide that you guys did incorporating mm-hmm. the uh, guidelines from the different data protection authorities is very telling because you see the discrepancies between authorities yes. and even though as i'm saying in a sense that the planet 49 case is a really easy one to to read and the decision is a relatively short one to to read and to understand but yet you still see data protection authorities, like, for example, the Spanish one, Mm -hmm. which is suggesting, well, as long as you make it clear to people and people uh, are truly taking some form of action, that action could be scrolling a page or clicking on a link and all that, which seems, in my view, doesn't quite fit with what the European Court of Justice is saying. Mm -hmm. That means that perhaps in Spain, the data protection authority will not enforce the law to those right. standards, and they will all, always enforce the law in accordance with the, the guidance they give. But I also sense from and you know well, for, for the from the work we do here with companies that operate on a pan-European basis, there is a lot of skepticism from organisations in interpreting the law too loosely. 
And I think it's really important to, on one level, appreciate the differences between member states. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, your guidance is really useful in in that respect. But also to to be able to look at it and say, okay, what solution is going to allow me to comply with the law? In, in terms of practicals. And, but then what solution is going to allow me to comply with the law, but then keep my marketing team happy because they are saying to me, yeah, but our competitors don't have that. And, and, and that is an ongoing debate that we, we all face in, re, in, real, in reality. Mm-hmm. And um, as many things in, in life, it's a matter of finding the right balance of what works in practice in a way that is compliant. Speaking of CJU and important decisions, it's kind of a a, a 2020 um, slash end of 2019 decision on the horizon uh, tomorrow, in yeah. fact. Tomorrow morning, I think. Isn't it? Yes. yes. Well, not decision. Yeah, yeah. You're the opinion. Right, David, yeah. The opinion from the Advocate General of the CJU on TREMS 2, having a look at data transfers once again and data transfer mechanisms. We touched on it. Um, briefly in the context of Brexit when looking at BCRs, but obviously a widely used mechanism um, since, you know, 2001 when we saw the first clauses being adopted have been the standard contractual clauses. And the uncertainty as to whether the Advocate General and then subsequently the CJU will find some issue with them and as to whether they will remain to be valid in 2020. Yeah, big issue, big. I I think, again, this is going to be one of the critical data protection compliance issues of 2020. How do you legitimize international data transfers? Mm -hmm. Because restrictions are still in the law. That's not going away. The mechanisms to legitimize international data transfers are also in the law. They are there, written Mm -hmm. in in Article 46 Mm -hmm. and 47 of the GDPR. But we are facing a potentially devastating decision by the European Court of Justice, potentially invalidating the standard contractual clauses, which, as you're saying, is a mechanism that has been used for 18 years, nearly two decades. There must be, right now, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, yeah. of data transfers and on contracts that are relying on the standard contractual clauses. So imagine if they go out of the window mm-hmm. by a court decision, then then what? <laughs> right. yeah. the, and I remember at the time of the safe harbor decision, you know, we're talking a much narrower scope, but the impact of that decision was quite huge. And in fact, you know, one of the practical things that organizations took was putting in place standard contractual clauses as the additional mechanism to rely on for data transfers to the United States when conversations around Privacy Shield were still ongoing, uh, but Safe Harbor had been deemed invalid. And so they were left in a position of uncertainty and therefore took the step of incorporating standard contractual clauses, which, of course, you know, hugely onerous when you've been relying on safe harbor for a number of years to go and talk with either internal stakeholders or, of course, you know, providers to put those in place. So where do organizations go from here if the CJU or the advocate general in the first instance is of the opinion that they are no longer a mechanism to be relied upon. So you're going to have to find an alternative. I think that's that's the issue. And the thing is, like all the cases that end up in the European Court of Justice, this is about much more than the parties involved. It's nothing to do with Facebook, to be honest. This is about the fact that in the EU, we have a restriction on data being transferred outside the EU. It's a restriction on something that happens every second of the day from every single corner of the EU. To start with, we have a a restriction on something that happens by default. The mechanisms to overcome those restrictions are, um, are there, and they have always been there, and contractual mechanisms are probably the most helpful 
mechanism because they are easy to implement and the fact that you have a contract which has been issued by an institution like the European Commission gives you that level of comfort and since the GDPR you don't even need to tell anybody you're using them you don't need to tell the data protection authorities oh we're relying on model process like in the old days so that system that is in place to make overcoming this restriction as seamless as possible is being challenged. And if it's challenged in the way that it affected Safe Harbor, where, as I'm saying, the day of the judgment, the court says, actually, we just don't think this works, that that means those clauses and those contracts that are in place are no longer valid, are no longer achieving the purpose of putting in place adequate safeguards. So the question is, so what do we do next? And there will have to be other types of contracts, other types of systems, mechanisms between exporters and importers of data to ensure that the data is protected. And the issue here is mainly the ability of public authorities in third countries having access to this data. We mustn't forget that this whole mess was the result of the disclosure by Edward Snowden of what was going on in terms of access to data by U.S. authorities. Mm -hmm. All these years later, we find ourselves trying to figure out whether there is a way to resolve that tension between the fact that you have European law requiring the data to be protected and people in Europe to have some form of recourse if the data is misused. And then on the other hand, you've got countries which give their public authorities the power to have access to data for whatever purposes they they have the power to. And that is a tension that needs to be resolved somehow. And contracts can do something about it in terms of trying to find a compromise between the parties. And I think whatever alternative mechanisms need to be devised in the future will have to address that point much more precisely than the model clauses have done until now. Just a couple of practical points on this. I know in our previous discussion we we touched on this. So if the opinion is released tomorrow by the Attorney General and CJU, is that very loosely standard contractual clauses are invalid or unworkable or whatever the language used would be, how would that affect the decision? Would the decision necessarily follow the opinion? Um, Do they usually follow the the opinion? How, How would you be able to predict what would happen In this space, from my experience of having seen other European Court of Justice decisions, Mm -hmm. they never depart radically from the Advocate General's opinion. They may tweak some of the points, but you do see the direction of trouble. The complexity of this case is that normally the ECA is asked to clarify answers to one or two or three questions. In this case, I think there are 11 different questions that were referred from the Irish uh, courts to the European Court of Justice. So there is more scope for disagreement between the Advocate General and the court. That is the reality. I still think that the Advocate General's view will give us a good sense of what the court may say in in the future, although we cannot just make an assumption that ah, if the Advocate General says, oh yeah, no, we've looked at this and and the way it works is fine, Mm -hmm. then we can just, okay, well, we can count on that being the decision. I think we need to be a little bit cautious, Mm -hmm. but I think it would be good to, whatever we see tomorrow, it'll be useful in terms of understanding what the potential consequences will be next year. And whatever we see tomorrow, you can be sure that one trust data guidance, I'm sure home levels will respond very quickly and will be available (laughs) most hours over the next two weeks to uh, deal with any questions. Okay, so we've touched on uh, a little bit of 2020 in terms Mm -hmm. of what we expect to see in our space. We've also kind of by the by, talked about the protection by design by default, how that will look mm. in terms of enforcement, perhaps. We've talked about Brexit. We've covered e-privacy regulation. Open question, what else would you expect to see? Do you hope to see? What are you interested to see in terms of developments, legal or non-legal, in our, in our privacy space? 
and that could be you know UK EU further mm-hmm. afield in the next twelve months. What are you looking forward to, Alexis? You first. Looking forward to slash I guess expecting. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the interesting things about the last year, you know, we talked about CCPA, but you know the other big development of this year that was or last year also uh, really last year and ongoing discussions of this year was the LGPD in Brazil but you know it's been interesting to see jurisdictions all around the world adopting new comprehensive data protection legislation or in fact I mean there are a lot of bills in the process of amending existing legislation in New Zealand in Australia in Argentina and a whole host of new comprehensive bills, as I say, you know, new laws that have come into effect in Nigeria, in Thailand. And, you know, we didn't touch on Japan. I think we spoke about that in one of our previous podcasts as well, speaking of adequacy and data transfers. But I think next year is just going to really increase. At the moment, there are bills in jurisdictions all around the world that are currently on the legislative agendas. And, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the state developments. Obviously, CCPA is the biggest thing. But, you know, at one time earlier this year, I think there was perhaps an expectation that we would see more state privacy laws come into fruition. A few fell by the wayside, a few didn't. Nevada ended up happening. You know, there was a lot of discussion around New York, whether their Privacy Act would pass this year, and it didn't. But I certainly expect to see more state bills being put on the legislative agendas, obviously running side by side with the federal discussion, which has just really taken off over the last couple of months. And, you know, in light of a lot of different things, CCPA, I think, has been a a big, big driver of that. And the running theme of other states looking at embedding their own privacy laws. And I think a lot of caution around perhaps ending up in a similar position as to where the U.S. finds itself with breach notification requirements at the moment. California, again, was uh, the state to first start the conversation. And slowly but surely, all states ended up passing their own breach notification laws, very similar in principle, very different in the detail. And I think there's an air of uncertainty as to whether, you know, the same thing would happen when discussing a comprehensive piece of legislation. So, yeah. Wow. Let's see what 2020 oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you, cl- you clearly have um, your, your finger on the pulse on what's going on around the world. And, I mean, I don't think you've left any any law for me to mention. No. <laughs> Um, no, I, th- I think what you, you you make really good points about where the world of privacy laws is going. I, I would mention the other side of the equation, which is all these laws are today primarily aimed at regulating technologies that rely on data. Sure. And we're going to see in 2020 key technological developments like artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. machine learning, uh, facial recognition, the use of biometric data for all kinds of purposes, all of that being truly affected by all of these legal developments. That's nothing new. That has already been the case. But when Mm -hmm. I see the questions I get all the time from from companies about we're doing this and we're undertaking this development or we want to use this data, this client data for artificial intelligence development purposes and so on. What are the implications of this? And all of that technological development in itself raises all sorts of issues. And in the context, for example, of facial recognition, and I know we discussed this last time, we are seeing an unprecedented level of interest by regulators, by policymakers, by privacy advocates to try to influence the way in which this technology develops or doesn't even develop at all. Mm -hmm. So we will see a lot of that. And I think in practical terms, what that means is that, for example, those 
who are involved in the development of these technologies or the implementation of these technologies will have to work hard through data protection impact assessments or through lawful grounds assessments and all kinds of aspects of, of the law in Europe and elsewhere to ensure that these uses of technology meet the requirements of the law and the expectations of regulators. And there is a lot of hands-on work to be carried out, in my view, in the very near future to ensure that the deployment of these magnificent technologies meets what the law is requiring them to achieve. So I think that's, that's a big theme for next year as well. Yeah, and I think if you just Google AI regulation, obviously it's a very hot topic. Even this week, there's a lot of debate around should we bring in specific laws to regulate AI, even apart from the privacy question. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a growing understanding that a lot of technologically uh, technological development around AI isn't, or machine learning, isn't brought in to necessarily do something bad. And that's the kind of shift I think we've seen in the market as, as the whole privacy space has matured over the last couple of years. That you know, if you're a privacy professional, you're dealing with reconciling needs, you know, the need to do things like cure disease and detect cancer or reduce waiting lists. And that's just in, obviously, in the healthcare space, there's numerous other needs that are even more to make people's lives better in a more positive way rather than just um, reducing risk. Mm -hmm. And obviously, there's a big overlap uh, of those needs or or wants with, um, with privacy rights and individual liberties. But as opposed to a few years ago when these things were kind of presented as a, a threat broadly, I think the, the modern privacy professional is aware that they're balancing things and there's no clear-cut right or wrong answer. And it's their job just to make the, the arguments on both sides heard and come up with some kind of solution that is um, is workable. Is that your sense? Are you seeing that as from when you're talking to your clients about emerging technologies? Yeah, that has always been my, my approach. And yeah. the thing is, Law is not in conflict with the development of technology and and the digital economy. Quite the opposite. I think we need to make sure that we understand all of us from regulators or legislators to policymakers, regulators, practitioners, everybody else, to understand that we cannot contribute to create a system that is there to stop technological development because, first of all, it's not going to stop. But uh, that's not the point anyway. To Law doesn't exist to be an impediment and data protection law should never ever be seen as an impediment of technological development and, and, and the common good. The law is there to regulate those practices in a way that they precisely achieve that common good and, and, and it's all about responsibility. In, in doing so. So I think, yes, all of us share that responsibility. And I'm looking also regulators in, in, in ensuring that in doing their job properly, they, they look at that like that. Because if anyone is ever thinking of, oh, we just need to stop this technology, is first, it's not going to happen. And secondly, it may not actually be the best outcome. So, yeah, that's perhaps our, our mission for, for the future, um, to, to save the world and, and to make sure that we, we are able to make things work and to use data privacy and data protection law in a way that is actually helpful for the development of technology and, and prosperity. There you go. Nice. I love it. A rallying cry for the end of 2019. That's good. Well, just like every, I'm sure, uh, end of 2019 podcast, we're an hour and a bit, which is the classic way to to wrap up the year. There's always something more to say. But just before we go, I do have a bit of a surprise. Um, As we've worked really hard this year on this new podcast project, uh, we've got you a little present. Oh, thank you. uh, Give that to you. That's right, kind. I mean... It's a horse. It's a horse. (laughs) (laughs) The listeners can't see. But uh, it's a a small blue bag, DG blue, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. I actually hope it's what we ordered because I haven't actually checked. That's (laughs) very, very kind. Thank, thank you very much. And um, hope you won't have any privacy issues within the gift. Oh, excellent. So, thank you, guys. Um, um, It's always a a pleasure to uh, to be part of this of these discussions and looking forward to many more discussions next year. Perfect. 
And actually, there's one more surprise, Alexis. We've got, also got you a present. <laughs> <laughs> this is a horse. <laughs> <laughs> we need a stable. It's a, it's a bit bigger. Okay. But for the, for the listeners that we do have, the main one, no, Alexis is not just the uh, affable presenter of our podcast, but also the the guy behind the the microphone, if you like, our tech lead. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we'd get That's something not... to reflect that. Okay. Is now, that actually going to open now we truly need yeah, to disclose what these presents are. Uh, we need to share our personal data with the audience. <laughs> 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 yeah. It's a, a clacker because uh, Alexis is responsible for the starting and the stopping will, of the broadcast. Oh, I so, see. Uh, it's like a Hollywood will, style. This is great. I will be using this at the at the beginning of each podcast yeah. and end of next year. Important to mark the beginning. Yeah. At least, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lovely. Great. Thank you, okay, Thank you very wonderful. much. No problem. So thanks very much for, for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed the podcast this year and look forward to a few more next year. Yeah. As ever, if you'd like to get in touch with us. Um, please email me um, or Alexis or Eduardo. Our details will be at the bottom of wherever you're listening to this link. And you can also um, suggest things. We'd like to hear your comments and thoughts on what you'd like us to discuss or any different new formats we could we could use for the podcast next year. But it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Eduardo. Thanks, Alexis. Thanks very much. Guys. Speak to you all soon. Thank you. That Privacy Podcast, brought to you by... One Trust Data Guidance in association with Hogan Lovelson.